Sometimes they get it right, sometimes they don't. Um, Disneyland and Disney World have a section called Tomorrowland. What tomorrow will be like. And so they try to imagine what life will be like tomorrow and try to recreate that. Uh, some things turn out well, some don't. In 1957 in Disneyland, Monsanto uh, sponsored in Disneyland the House of the Future. And they tried to recreate, and you could go through what a house of the future would be like. Well, Monsanto um, at that time made plastics. So everything in the house was plastic. It was a plastic house with plastic walls, plastic ceiling, plastic dishes, plastic countertops. Everything was plastic. And they said, in 10 years, this is what houses are going to look like, all plastic. Well, I don't know that that exactly turned out that way. Most of us don't live in all plastic houses, do we? It's just sort of hard to tell what the house of the future or anything else about the future will be like. And that's why it makes it even more incredible what Jesus has done in the passages that we're looking at. Matthew 24 and the parallel passages in Mark 13 and Luke 21 is a whole chapter of where Jesus predicted the future. So we're spending four weeks going verse by verse through this chapter to see the future according to Jesus. Let me catch you up. We started last week. If you're new, we're sure glad you're here. Let me just give you a little background from the first part of the chapter. So this, the occasion for this is it's Tuesday, the last week of Jesus' life. He's going to die on the cross on Friday, three days later. And he is taught all day in the temple courts. That's where in the big plaza where they gathered with other people and he taught. And he's leaving the temple. And this will be his last time to ever be in the temple. He said right before he left, Oh, Jerusalem, how I would gather you to myself, but you would not. And so I leave your house desolate. The house of God is going to be desolate. Three days later, the, temp, the, the veil in the temple is going to tear in two from top to bottom. This is the end of the temple age. But the disciples don't know that yet. And so as they're leaving, they comment on the magnificent architecture of the buildings of the temple. They say, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And indeed they were. I shared with you last week in regard to the massive stones that some of the stones of the temple, the largest, were 60 feet long, 18 feet high, 12 feet wide. And so I shared with you that wall on either side of you is 60 feet long. I sort of stepped it off. It's about 60 feet. It's almost exactly 18 feet high. So the, there were single stones in the temple as big as the wall by you. That's just incredible. They, they went the height of the temple 150 feet high, these stones, 75-foot doors, surrounded by a plaza of 35 acres. So for 500 yards, there were 136 columns this way, and at this 400 yards this way, these huge plazas with 160-foot columns. Amazing architecture. And so they said, man, isn't this something, Jesus? And you know what Jesus said to them? He said, not one stone will be left on another. And that just blew their minds. I mean, it'd be like if you went to Washington and somebody said, hey, you see the Washington Monument? Not one stone will be left on another. And they were stunned. They went out of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, across from the Temple Mount, sat down there, and then they asked Jesus, when is that going to happen? And what will be the signs of your coming in the end of the age? 
Now they're asking those two questions together because they can't imagine that those two events would be separate. They can imagine in their worldview that the temple would be destroyed without the end of the age coming. But in fact, that's what happened. We're going to see today that Jesus answers both these questions. The temple was destroyed about 40 years after Jesus said that in 70 AD. We're going to talk about that today. And of course, his coming in the end of the age has not yet come. Uh, so Jesus tells them in the first part of the chapter that we looked at last week, hey, it's not going to happen right away, this coming of the end of the age. He gave them six things that were going to happen. Wars and rumors of wars, natural disasters, uh, there were going to be false teachers, persecution, people who fall away, and the gospel has to be preached to the end of the world. So he said, these aren't the signs of the end. They're just going to characterize a long period there. Now he comes in the passage we're going to look at today to tell them about the destruction of Jerusalem. That first part of their question, when's that going to happen? That's what we're going to see today, and Jesus predicts it. So we're going to look at some history, some dates, and you may say, well, why are we going to do all this history? Because if Jesus got the first part right, you can pretty much depend he'll get the second part right. So we're going to see how Jesus accurately depicted the fall of Jerusalem, okay? So... He said there are two signs that it's about to happen. He told all those things last week and said, now that's not the end. That's going to characterize the whole time. Don't, don't get all worked up over wars and natural disasters and all that. But now he's going to tell them two signs that are going to signal the fall of Jerusalem. First of all, we look at Luke's chapter, and the first one is Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, its desolation is near. It's about to be destroyed. Let's look at that in Luke chapter 21, verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Okay? And so he says... When you see that, it's time to get out of Dodge. It is time to run. You just leave because it's about to be destroyed. Next verse. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Remember these details because I'm going to tell you what happens. So remember the details of what Jesus predicted. Flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. If you're in the city, leave. If you're outside it, don't go back in for anything. Just go. And then he says, verse 22, for this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. He says this is going to be God's judgment on Jerusalem and especially on the temple for rejecting the prophets and rejecting the Messiah. God judges this is his coming judgment, this destruction. He says in verse 23, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Jesus uh, uh, expresses concern for the vulnerable. And you can understand how that would be. We're watching on the news this week refugees fleeing in the Ukraine. And you can imagine if you're running for your life in the Ukraine, it would be worse if you are a nursing mother or if you're pregnant. And that's the same kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here. He says, there will be great distress or tribulation in the land and wrath against this people. And they will fall by the sword, so it's going to be conquered, this city, and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Remember that detail. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The first sign, it's about to be destroyed. 
When it's surrounded by armies, it's time for you to leave. The second sign, not mentioned in Luke, so let's go to Matthew's account in Matthew 24. And he says the second sign is that the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. Boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? What in the world do those big words mean? Well, an abomination means something that's abominable, that's repulsive, and it defiles the, the holy place. The holy place was the outer part of the temple, holy of holies on the inside, the holy place where the t- priests ministered. And so you're going to see this defiling, abominable thing that is going to bring the desolation standing in the holy place. Now, so let's look at Matthew 24, verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. So let's stop there. He refers to Daniel. So this phrase that Jesus is using He's quoting from the Old Testament prophet Daniel. It's four times in Daniel. Let me read one of those in the context of Daniel 11.31, one of those prophecies that uses this phrase. Daniel 11.31 said, His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. When you read Daniel 11, the whole chapter, it's prophesying the Greek kingdom and the Syrian kingdom that's soon to come. So that verse was fulfilled, the abomination that causes desolation, Daniel 11.31, was fulfilled in 168 B.C. A Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes conquered Jerusalem, did just what that verse says, he cut off the daily sacrifice that was their worship in the temple, and he desecrated the temple. And so what Antiochus did, he went into the holy place where the burnt offering altar was right outside the building, and he built an altar to the idol Zeus on top of that and sacrificed a pig on top of that pagan altar. He was doing the worst thing he could to insult the Jews, right? Jewish people, an unclean animal, Sacrifice to an idol on top of their holiest place. He's, he's just poking his finger in the eye of the Jews. He's doing the worst thing he can. It is, the, it is an abomination that causes desolation. 168 B.C. Three years later, the Jews rose up and threw off his oppression and recaptured the temple, rededicated the temple. A man by the name of Judas Maccabees led this Jewish war for independence in 165 B.C. You can read about it in the books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. They're part of the Apocrypha. Those are books between our Old and New Testament that we don't count as inspired, canonical, but some of them have historic value and they tell about what happened between the Old and New Testament and tell about in 1st Maccabees how Judas Maccabees defeated the armies rededicated the temple, purified it, and relit the menorah. And that's what Jews celebrate in, at Hanukkah around Christmas time every year. It was in December of 165 B.C. that Judas Maccabees rededicated the temple, relit the menorah. And so that's why Jews light those lights on Hanukkah every December. That's their holiday that comes from that. So that's the background. This phrase prophesied by Daniel, had a fulfillment in the time between the Old and New Testament. 
But now Jesus quotes it again in Matthew 24, 15 and says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation. So Jesus is saying there's going to be a second fulfillment, another fulfillment. Antiochus fulfilled it, but he didn't fill it full. And so here comes another fulfillment that will signal the destruction of Jerusalem. And he says, when you see this, run, get out. Same thing Luke said. Let's read it. Verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go back down to take anything out of the house. You say, well, what are they doing on the housetop? Well, in their houses, constructed with a flat roof, your, your roof was like your patio. You had an outside set of steps going up to it. It's where you dried your fruit and made raisins out of grapes and dried your clothes and set in the sun and all that. So they were often on the roof. So he said, if you're in the roof, you go down those outside steps. Don't go back in the house. You just go down those steps and run. There's no time when you see this sign. And he says, uh, Verse 18, let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. So if you're out working in the field, don't go back toward town. Don't go back to your house. Just go. Verse 19, how dreadful it will be for those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. That's what Luke had said. Verse 20, pray that your flight will not take place in winter. We're seeing Ukrainian refugees right now. It's tougher because of winter. Well, Jesus said, just pray it's not in winter. It will make your traveling harder. Or on the Sabbath. Because uh, you can't get supplies, nothing is open, and so forth. So Jesus has said this second sign, the abomination that causes desolation. Here's the two signs. Army surrounding Jerusalem, an abominable thing standing in the holy place where it doesn't belong. Now let me tell you what happened. Let's see the fulfillment. About 36 years after Jesus spoke these words. Jesus spoke these words around 30 A.D. We're not exactly sure, but we are sure in 66 A.D., about 36 years later, the Jews revolted against Roman rule. You know, during Jesus' time, you know how the Romans were occupying the land. So Jews, zealots, revolted, defeated the Roman garrison, declared independence, took back over everything. The next year, 67 A.D., the Romans sent a big army to retake it. The general Vespasian led 60,000 Roman troops, and they invaded what we call Israel. And in Galilee, they first conquered the fortified towns to the north in Galilee, then circled around in Perea across the Jordan and conquered the fortified towns there, and then the other fortresses in Judea. They're surrounding Jerusalem. They're encircling Jerusalem and the noose is tightening around the city. During this time, 68 AD, the zealot, there's sort of civil war in Jerusalem. Who's going to control which political faction? And the zealots, the right-wing radicals, firebrands, they take control of Jerusalem and they take over the temple and they desecrate the temple. They turn it into a stockade, into a munitions place, into a jail and they put their own high priest in. A guy named Fanny who's a stonecutter from a village who's not qualified to be high priest and they, it's sort of a joke to them. They're not religious Jews, they're zealots and they, and they put him as high priest. And a former high priest wept and said, oh, if I had not lived to see this abomination. And there's the abomination standing in the holy place where he does not belong. The noose is tightening around Jerusalem, but then in June of 69 AD, Vespasian gets word that Nero, back in Rome, has died. 
There's a power vacuum. There's a struggle for emperor. Vespasian withdraws his troops, goes back to Rome. He's declared the new Caesar, the new emperor. And so there's a little bit of a gap. Eusebius, the Christian historian, says that Christians living in Jerusalem remembered Jesus' words, saw these two signs being fulfilled. Jerusalem had been surrounded by armies. The abomination had stood in the holy place. And they ran and they crossed the Jordan River and went to the hills. He said to flee to the mountains. They went to the hills of Transjordan to a town called Pella and escaped in this reprieve when Vespasian has gone back to Rome. We don't know much more about it than that. We hope that's true. We have that one account from Eusebius that Christians got out of Jerusalem because they saw these two signs. The next year, 70 AD, Vespasian's now Caesar. He sends his son Titus with a Roman army and they come back to Jerusalem in 70 AD. And Titus immediately builds a siege wall all around the city, five miles in circumference. They build it in three days. They cut off anyone from leaving. And by the way, Josephus says that that winter the Jordan flooded and if you'd waited till winter you couldn't cross the Jordan. Jesus said, beware that it is not in winter when you leave. And so now no one can leave Jerusalem. And deserters try to escape, try to break through the siege wall. And Titus and his soldiers capture them. And to send a lesson that you should not try to desert, they crucify the deserters on the hills around Jerusalem. They crucify, the historian Josephus says, 500 deserters a day. They ran out of crosses. They ran out of trees to make crosses, Josephus says. You had to wait your turn till somebody else died, then they'd take them down and put another person up. 500 a day at the height of that five-month siege. People that were starving in the city, turning to cannibalism, uh, civil war in the city. Titus is trying to starve them out. And then he begins to attack the city with battering rams and with siege towers. And the Jews fought hard. They would build tunnels under the siege towers and they would collapse before they had a chance to get to the wall back and forth but finally Titus broke through the walls of Jerusalem and entered the city and the only thing left was the temple that huge with those 15 story retaining walls massive stones and the zealots were barricaded in the temple complex and Titus met them in July of 70 A.D., July 22nd, 70 A.D., and met them and said, if you'll come out of the temple, fight somewhere else, I'll spare your temple. And they said, no. And Titus said, then we'll level it. And they barricaded themselves in the temple. Titus tried his battering rams, and they were no match for that Herodian construction. They tried to lever open the gates of the temple, and they could not do that. But finally, they set fire enough fire to the gates and got them burning, and they burnt the gates of the temple complex enough that they could get in, and they burnt the temple building down. And in August of 70 A.D., the temple fell, and Titus said, level it so that you cannot tell that it was ever occupied and exactly what Jesus had said about 40 years earlier happened they 
I don't know how they broke up those massive stones, but they broke down the temple. They broke all those stones. They pushed it off the retaining wall into those valleys, and they leveled that just as Jesus had said. And Jesus had said the Temple Mount will be trampled by the Gentiles, remember, until the age of the Gentiles is over. Let me show you a picture of the Temple Mount today. This is an aerial view. The rectangle where you can see the walls is the Temple Mount. It is not as impressive today, of course, because those valleys have been filled in around it by the rubble and those walls are from medieval times and that have been rebuilt. But that's the footprint of it. And Today, even though the Jews retook the land in 1948 and in 1967 in the Six-Day War, they retook the city of Jerusalem, but that Temple Mount is still trampled by the Gentiles because that gold dome you see is a Muslim holy place, the Dome of the Rock, and the black dome that you can see right in the foreground is the El-Aqsa Mosque. There are two Muslims. The Muslims control the Temple Mount, even though Jerusalem belongs to Israel today. It is still, just as Jesus said, being trampled by the Gentiles. And an Orthodox Jew will not go on the Temple Mount today because they don't know where the Temple was. And an Orthodox Jew does not want to risk stepping where the Holy of Holies was. And so an Orthodox Jew won't go there today. They don't even know where that massive temple with those 60-foot stones was. It's been wiped clean. So just what Jesus said. I'll show you one more image. And this is the western wall. This is the western retaining wall of the Temple Mount. Uh, only the bottom couple or few courses of stones are original. The rest is a medieval construction. But those bottom course or two is all that is left of the original Temple Mount. And so the Jews go there. That is their most holy site. It is where they go to pray. The Temple Mount itself is, is desecrated. They go to that retaining wall, to this wailing wall, and, and you can go there and they've written prayers on little pieces of paper and pushed them into the chinks between the stones and it, it is their place of prayer. In 1967, when the Six-Day War, when Arabs uh, attacked Israel, and in six days they defeated the Egyptian and, and Arab coalition and the soldiers, they said, ran through the streets of Jerusalem first for the first time they could get to that wall and they prayed there. That is their holy site. But that's all that's left. Those few stones of the retaining wall, all that's left, it's exactly what Jesus had said it would be trampled by the Gentiles. And when it was taken in 70 A.D., Jesus said, they'll take you as prisoner to the nations. And Josephus says that a million one hundred thousand Jews died and 97,000 were captured, and those 97,000 were taken to the arenas where they, were, they died in the arenas, or taken to mines, to work in mines, or to row the Roman galley ships, just as Jesus had said would happen. Jesus knows the future. Now, one more thing I want to share. We're going to talk next week about the return of Christ. But even in this passage, which is about the destruction of Jerusalem, there's some hints that it's sort of a preview or an overlay that this distress is a preview of another distress. Because it says in Matthew 
24, verse 21, For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Well, Daniel uses that phrase, not of the destruction of Jerusalem, but of the distress of the end of the age. Let me read to you Daniel 12, 1 through 3. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to everlasting contempt. I'm saying to you that there's a little bit of an overlay here that Jesus is also referring to a coming distress. The next verse in Matthew says, If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Is he talking there about the distress around Jerusalem? It doesn't seem like that was shortened for the sake of the elect. Or is he now sort of talking about a preview of that coming distress, I think. One more thing that makes a pattern between the two. Paul seems to indicate that this phrase, abomination of desolation, that had a first fulfillment between the Old and New Testament in Antiochus, had a second fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem, just as Jesus said. It may have a third and final fulfillment in an Antichrist, a man of lawlessness. Because in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3-4, through 4, Paul writes, Don't want anyone to deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus comes, will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. So it sounds like there's a third and final fulfillment of this repeated prophecy coming in a final distress that in some ways will be like what we've learned about the destruction of Jerusalem. Why do we spend time talking about this ancient history? Because Jesus predicted two things in this chapter. He got the first one exactly right in amazing detail. You know what that tells me? I bet he can get the second one right in amazing detail as well. So let me put it to you this way. You know, in, in professional sports today, betting has been legalized widespread and so now you got all these commercials and advertisements for DraftKings and FanDuel and Caesar with all the Manning family. Do you see those with Peyton and Eli and Cooper and all? Don't those Mannings sell everything in the world? Do they not have the best endorsement deal in the world? They're on every commercial in the world, aren't they? Caesar's sports betting. I think that all of this uh, legalized gambling is, will corrupt sports, but that's another subject. But I talk about that to tell you I don't believe in gambling. I don't think gambling is good. But there's one gamble, one wager that everybody has to make. You bet on Jesus or you bet against him. You may say, well, I don't, I don't care. I'm not even getting into that. Then you've bet against him. Because Jesus has claimed to be the only Son of God, the only Savior of the world, the coming King. You've got to decide, 
Are you with him or not? Do you bet on him or bet against him? You're wagering your life either by your obedience and submission to his lordship or by your ignoring him and discounting him. You're betting on or against Jesus. He's claimed to be the one. What do you say? You've got to wager one way or the other. I'm all in on Jesus. I'm all in on Jesus. Because if he can do this, what we've seen today in Matthew 24, he knows and controls the future. And even when life seems out of control, and some of you may be facing some situations in your health or in your finances that you just don't know and it just seems out of control, or maybe you're worried about our world's situation right now and what in the world is going to happen. None of us knows. Is this thing going to escalate? We don't know. It causes us to have fearful thoughts. Let me tell you, there is one who knows and controls the future, and his name is Jesus. Be all in on Jesus. He has proven that he is worthy of our trust and we can rest in him. And no matter what happens, we can know there is a plan that he is working and it will all somehow fit into his plan. And he's told us these things that we might believe in him and follow him. Would you pray with me? Lord, I want to pray. For those who might be here who are anxious or uncertain about their future or the future of our world, and I pray they will anchor their hope and their lives to Jesus. I pray that they'll find in you, Lord, assurance that you're the one who knows and controls the future. And I pray for a person who may be here who's in the valley of decision, who's trying to decide who am I and whose am I and what is my life going to look like. And Lord, I pray that today they'll bet it all on Jesus. I pray they'll wager their life and their hope and their eternity on Jesus. I pray today they'll say, I don't understand everything, but I hear enough to know he is worthy of my trust. He is who he says he is. And I have to wager one way or the other, I will not bet against him. I'm betting on Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing a song of invitation. And today, if you want to bet it on Jesus, if you want to con con commit your life to Jesus, you want to follow him as Lord of your life, you can walk forward while we're singing. Meet me here. We'll rejoice with you, answer any questions you have. You can be baptized March 20th is our next time of baptism. That's the way of showing you're all in on Jesus. Today you can confess him. You could join our church by walking forward. You could come for prayer. This is just a time to respond. You can also see me at the Welcome Center. If you have more questions, I'll be there right after this. You can do any of those things there. But I just invite you now, if God's speaking to your heart, would you respond as we sing? Hymn number 54, hymn number 54. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not the compassions 
you could be seated. Hey, some great things are starting in our church this week that I want to share with you and invite you to be a part of for men and for teenagers. Uh, a men's fellowship and Bible study, How to Be a Man, begins tonight at 6 o'clock. If you haven't signed up, you can just show up. It doesn't matter. You're welcome and invited. Uh, come in the doors near the Welcome Center. And then Wednesday night begins a new round of our Christian Discipleship Pathway classes. Three new classes start Wednesday at 6.30. So this is a great time for you to jump in on Wednesday night if you haven't before. I'll be leading a class uh, starting Wednesday at 6.30 on how to share your faith. Every Christian ought to be equipped. If somebody asks you, the Bible says to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's in you. Can you do that if somebody asks you, hey, how could I become a Christian or what does it mean to be a Christian? Can you tell them in two or three minutes? We'll learn two or three verses. We'll learn a way to do that, learn how to answer objections. That starts this Wednesday. Five Love Languages starts this Wednesday, a great relationship class. Um, one Minute After You Die begins this Wednesday about what the Bible teaches about life after death. And so invite you to come be a part of this Wednesday night. We're signing up still for our church directory. We want you a part of that. It helps people to know one another. If your picture is in there, they can put a name and face together. You get a free directory and a picture. Sign up on our website for that. And then finally, uh, our prayer ministry. This is the last day to sign up for that. We have over 110 people uh, committed to pray for our church at a specific hour each week. Thank you for that. Still about 20 uh, slots in what I would call waking hours that are left. And so still a chance for you, if you'd go by the Welcome Center today, uh, last opportunity to sign up uh, for that. Thank you for being a part of that. Uh, Adam Clark is a member of our lead pastor search team. He's going to come share with you about something and then going to lead us in our closing prayer. Adam, thank you. Hi, good morning. So as he said, I'm, I'm part of the lead pastor search committee. And so uh, some of you may be confused why we have a search committee, but uh, you may or may not realize, but Dr. Cox is going to be retiring next year. So uh, this is a, a crucial time in our church, and we want to make sure that we have as much input from the uh, community as we can. Uh, so I would like to draw your attention to the survey that's in your bulletin this morning. Uh, so before we talk about that, uh, I know Mark McBride spoke in the earlier service, and he said there there. are two ways to do this survey. There's a right way and a wrong way. The wrong way is to take this piece of paper and just check the boxes and put it in the box. Uh, that's the wrong way. Uh, the right way, would, we would ask you to pray about your responses. Uh, we want your, your genuine support through this, uh, and we want it to be you know, led by God. So we we've continue to pray and ask for your prayers as well. Uh, so there are, there are two ways that you can take this survey. You can obviously take the paper survey that we've put in your bulletin this week, and it'll be this week only. Um, uh, or you can take it online. If you go to manchesterfbc.com, uh, it's on that first page there. There's, I believe there's a QR code, if I'm not mistaken, or a link there that you can click on. The survey won't take you more than just a couple minutes to do. Uh, it's a few check boxes. There's a place where you can add additional comments if you wish. Um, and then if, but if you are taking the paper survey, we ask that you return that to, there's boxes by the bookstore and by the library. So either one of those places, you can, uh, you can submit them there. Um, and if you are doing a paper copy, you don't have to also go online. So I know some, there's been a little bit of confusion about that. Take it in one spot, one spot only. We don't need multiple uh, responses from everyone. So one place only. And then the final thing that I would ask is that we would just ask your, for your prayers and support through that. Uh, as I said earlier, this is going to be a, a huge deal for our church. 
Dr. Cox has been an amazing pastor. I know for all of my life since I've attended First Baptist, uh, he's had a huge impact on my life. And so, you know, we as a group are praying and we ask that you help us to pray uh, that whoever the future lead pastor of First Baptist would be, uh, obviously would be the man that God would choose. So we ask that you would just pray with us along, alongside us. Uh, so I'm going to close us in prayer and then you guys will be dismissed. This bow. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the state you've given us, Lord. We just thank you that we can uh, take comfort in knowing that uh, you know the future, Lord. I know that there's always uncertainty that exists in our world, Lord, but we know that ultimately you know what's going to happen, Lord, and we take comfort in knowing that. Uh, we thank you for this message that we've heard this morning. We um, pray for uh, the future of our church. We pray for our future lead pastor, whoever that man may be. Uh, so whoever you are calling, I pray, Lord, that you would just help us um, to give us guidance and wisdom as we move towards that. So, Lord, we ask you would be with us this week. Uh, give us your wisdom and guidance as we go from this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.